This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Rolling. This is my engineer, Duncan Trussell here. Hi, everyone. And uh, Raghu Marcus and Jack Cornfield. Jack is hanging out with us, Duncan and I today. This is like a, uh, we've been now ongoing doing this kind of thing for the last couple of years. And the fact that we are able to get together like this is pretty graceful. We're at the uh, Maui Retreat, Open Your Heart in Paradise. That's with Ram Das, Jack, Krishna Das, Trudy. Goodman and Sharon Salzberg and Mirabai Bush and Duncan and I. And um, the theme of the retreat has been finding the beloved, touching the compassionate heart. And part of that theme, which is kind of what I wanted to get into here with both of you, is around the ser- when we search for love. And that search for love, it's based upon a concept that our deepest wounds and insecurities, out of them are born our greatest gifts. And there's a little bit more to it that we'll get into in a bit. Um, so uh, I want to, I'll start with uh, an awfully embarrassing story. It's not the first time I've told it. And uh, it is certainly a real wound for me. I was in India with Maharaji. And at the time, we all were given, Rameshwar Das, who's part of the retreat as well, He's a photographer. He got all these wonderful pictures of Maharaji, and he made little stamps, like postage stamps. And we all got a sheet or two or something like that. And whenever we'd go there, Maharaji loved those stamps. He'd give them all away and stuff. And whenever, so we'd go there. You got any stamps? Give them stamps. Of course, he'd give them all to the, you'd think he would distribute them equally amongst the maybe eight or ten people that were sitting there. He gave them all, of course, to somebody you thought didn't deserve one stamp. Right. So all of that went on. Then one day, I was actually sitting across the courtyard a little bit, and uh, he was asking for stamps, and I, I had a half a sheet. I took it out of my jola, my bag, and I actually, right in front of him, this wasn't any 
big magic trip or anything. Right in front of them, I ripped them in half. And I went up because I, I wanted to keep some of them. And I went up and I gave him half. Well, he looked at me like I'd just thrown some, you know, horrible, awful at him. And he just he went, nay. And he threw him back at me. Well, I, it, the, it took a long time, a week. I just lived in this horrific place of gigantic, I am the worst person that ever lived. And, uh, but it was a reflection on my obviously constricted thing around generosity, perhaps is the right word. Uh, and, uh, and it, and it did, it did put a spotlight on that for me so big time. Now, you know, I was young, I was 24, five years old. Anyhow, I went back a week, I mean, a week later, I so happened to have those same stamps. And he again said, do you have any stamps? And this time, of course, I gave all the stamps. And he looked at me, and he, like he used to do, and he, he pointed his finger out. Watch out. <laughs> Anyhow, out of this whole thing, this is, this is something that I have dealt with my entire life. Any, a constriction to not just give it all away. <clears throat> and uh, and the, the way that I interpret this in terms of this, this is a real wound, insecurity, whatever you want to call it, is that uh, because that light was shone on it so long ago, uh, it, it is it is something that has allowed me to work with this particular thing, to to be able to transcend it and see the beauty in l giving it all up to whoever is is near me. So that's my little. I'm glad to hear it because I've been thinking about next time um, wanting to get paid more, and I'm <laughs> so glad to hear hear about the generosity. So I'm very appreciative of that. Thank you, Rock. Uh, this okay. now sets it all all right. All right. See. <laughs> now I understand. Uh, uh, you know, when you talk about um, wounds and gifts. Um, one of the ways that it turns for me, and I can certainly talk personally in a little bit, um, is uh, a, a different language for that is initiation. And that if you're in a traditional culture, uh, a Mayan culture and an African culture, or in certain ways in the Buddhist culture, um, you're not considered an adult until you've gone through some form of spiritual initiation. And the spiritual initiation um, is some kind of a brush with death or something that you have to give your whole being to. I mean, in the Maasai, the young men would go out and, you know, kill the lion and come back, and they would be, um, having faced that danger, they would be considered, now, all right, you're a, you're a grown man in the tribe now, or so forth. And um, women, of course, women's main initiation was to have a child, which, especially in the old days, was more dangerous than hunting a lion. There were so many women who died in childbirth or lost children and so forth. Um, and I was talking with my beloved Trudy Goodman about this. It was uh, During this retreat, we were talking to a man here who's a, um, trained as a shaman in Africa and why people respect various teachers, who gets respected. And, you know, there's charisma and things like that. But there's a kind of a... Uh, 
I was going to say like a scent, not quite a perfume, but there's a, a certain aura around somebody who's gone through something really, really difficult and then can look at you and say, it's okay, I know how to do this. And for Trudy, it was her years of Zen practice, but it was also her daughter just about dying in the hospital and holding this little tiny body with meningitis, and they say, your daughter's going to die. But for Trudy, it was a car accident that almost killed her and took years to come back. It was some other tragic things that have happened in her life, including the suicide of her first husband and so forth. For me, um, my really painful things were in my early family, where my father was abusive and violent and so forth. And, you know, we all have our history of some kind of pain or other early or later. Um, but also it was the training that I did um, in the monastery, where I did a, re a silent retreat for a year, almost a year and a half. The only person I talked to was this one teacher periodically. And I just was instructed to sit and walk and meditate as many hours as I could. So I'd sleep for four or five hours and then go back to it. And I went through everything there. I thought I was dying. I thought I was going crazy. I had great visions and insights. Um, I had all the terrible um, thoughts of myself as a failure. I had the worst thoughts. Oh, now I'm going to get enlightened. <laughs> you know, all the inflated thoughts, all that. You get to see, you know, the whole mess. But somehow coming out of that and coming out of living out of a begging bowl and walking through the poorest villages and sometimes not getting enough food, but people come with such love and they give you food because you represent something for them. It's as if even the poorest villages people would say, you so represent the spirit of the Buddha, the spirit of awakening that we love that we're going to give of the little food we have. We'll put it in your bowl. And you can't say thank you. You have to be silent. You have to receive it, and then you got to look inside and say, wait, these people don't have enough food, and I'm taking it. I, I better get my shit together, you know. I better get my act together. So I had those kind of pieces of initiation. And what I see, whoever it happens to be, and Ram Dass who's teaching here or, or Sharon and so forth, is that they have somehow gone through something or faced the things that are really difficult. And the gift from Ramdas is that he's willing to talk about it so openly and say, oh yeah, I flunked the course then and I was, you know, I just got caught in this. So you feel his humanness, but as he speaks from that place of his very vulnerable humanness and his wounds, he also laughs and says, it's a great dance, isn't it? You know, that's not who we are. We're not our wounds. We can face them, go through them, and somehow know that there's something so much bigger that we are a part of that's not that little, small, frightened sense of self. And even though it comes back and you adopt it as your pet, as Ramdas would say, or something, there is the, you know, that there's some part of you when you become initiated, when you've gone through something, when you've... Not only that you have your wounds, but when you've used them in a way to find your dignity. Like Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years of prison. When you use them to find a kind of unshakability, um, it changes you and it changes almost everything. This is from a Zen teacher, Durkheim, Carl Fried Durkheim. He said, the person who is really on the way, with a capital W on their path of, whether you call it love or consciousness or opening or just living an authentic life, being real, falls upon hard times 
in the world, that person will not, as a consequence, turn to those friends that offer them refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. And only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found in them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening. And that annihilation is all kinds. It's a physical death, but it can be ego annihilation. It can be, okay, you show yourself and you show all your flaws and you go, yuck, you know. Um, and then you realize that who you are is so much more than that, that you also were born with this original dignity or nobility, we call it Buddha nature, that you have within you as well the great heart of compassion. Mm. You know, and you start to see this is possible for me not because I'm such a great person, but because when I'm not in the center of the story, I connect with something so much bigger. So mm -hmm. have you had that experience, Duncan, in some way? Oh, um, well, I, I had my mom die in cancer in the same year. Uh, so while my mom was in the final stages of breast cancer, she was calling me up while I was getting radiation therapy every day to sort of walk to help me in that mm. you know, she was sick she was beyond sick mm. uh dying and she was calling to comfort me mm. as i was driving back from but uh and you know you i love the term initiation because it's not victimy and i love that and it's uh i like it because they're like what you're saying they're people who who understand when you say well one of the best things that ever happened to me was that worst was the worst year of my life. Yes. And not because it was horrible, but because in the horror you realize, Oh, I'm even here. I'm fine. Mm. And then that's just a wild thing to stumble upon there. Then you become free in a new way. It's like you're after that initiation, you're given a new life. And you can say, what the hell? All right, I have it now. I'm going to do something. I don't have to worry so much about it. Yeah. Well, yes. I can be real. When you remember. I mean, it's not when like you... When you well, rem you remember all the time, don't you, Duncan? <laughs> <laughs> no. But when, no. But when you do, you, when yeah. you do. And, yeah. uh, but I wanted to... Uh, I was wondering, as you were talking about the Buddha nature uh, that you realize in yourself... Um, is that the same thing as the soul? I don't know. <laughs> My teacher, Ajahn Chah, loved to say it's uncertain, isn't it? That was it. In Thai, the word was, or Lao, it was the word was my na. It's uncertain. And you'd ask him, you know, philosophical questions, tell me about enlightenment. And he'd smile, look back and say, it's uncertain, isn't it? And you'd say, well, that. what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. Well, should I do this? And he'd say, it's uncertain, isn't it? And he really wanted you to step out of your idea mind and come into the present and realize that things are uncertain and that you don't need to lay concepts on top of it of a soul or a self or no self or Atman or, you know, Brahman and the Hindu or the Buddhist or whatever. But here we are, and isn't it mysterious? Now, are you really here? Are you here? Right. Are you seeing the mystery? Mm -hmm. Are you experiencing being alive now? Mm -hmm. You know, and that well, soul, who the hell knows? <laughs> 
I do like to think, though, whatever it, it's the uncertainty runs through every tradition, and people are satisfied if they're satisfied with that particular word impression rather than that one. But ultimately, there is something that runs through as true through every uh, tradition. It's just different ways. I mean, I, I Ramdas and I did something a few weeks ago, and I had found John, you know John Woodruff, who's done these. Uh, he worked with Evans West on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, a commentary, and he called it, by the way which to me was the closest thing to the Buddhist concept of Buddha mind, was soul complex, was his word. An ever-changing, that this was not a static thing, but an ever-changing thing based on what person's karma, go, you know, as they go through incarnation and so on. Those things, which are beautiful, and each spiritual tradition, religion has it, they don't um, mean very much to me anymore. I, I don't. Mm. I don't inhabit that particular room in the library very much. And I can read there, and I know the different languages and things. Um, I'm much more interested first in the immediacy of things. And if you want to ask about soul, let's ask about soul, like soul music and soul food. And can you <laughs> yeah. be soulful? Can right. you can you bring your heart and your you know, your love and your passion and your care, especially in these times that are so difficult, can you bring that to this mysterious human incarnation? Can you bring that alive? That's what interests me. But you, today you were talking about um, when you were doing this beautiful sound meditation and you, at the end of it, and as you were doing the sound meditation, I I got really far out and I... um. And in a, at, at the end of it, you said, D "Didn't don't you? Didn't you feel like you could maybe move your mind out of yourself?" Do you, am I quoting you correctly there? Not exactly, but I asked, "Could you feel that your mind was much bigger than your body? That your mind was like the vast, like the sky yes. in space?" Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. okay. So that experience, your body floating in that space, but sounds everything floating in there. Yes. Yes. Okay. And as grounded as what you just said is, yeah. and I love it. Yeah. That experience that you uh, are bringing an entire room of people into feels so far out and so wonderful but certainly not familiar in the normal sense of the word like maybe this is something i've dreamed about or maybe this is something that i was when i was a baby or something uh so it's curious to me because i love the immediacy that you're speaking of but also, I, I love the what you have l l what you lure us into through these exercises. Lure, you're using that word around us. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the, fishing. Well, you know, I mean, um, the nature of the heart and mind. Everything breathes. Your body breathes, right? Your cerebrospinal fluid is breathing. Um, you know, your blood is circulating. It's all the heart pumps. It opens and closes. Um, the, the the tides out here are are rising and falling with the phases of the moon as the moon circulates. You know, women's menstrual cycles, the stock market cycle. It's all in these great rhythms, mm. right? Um, and so sometimes people get the idea that if you become really spiritual, your mind is going to open in this vast way. Oh, now I'm going to live in vastness, yes. you know. But if you pay attention 
you notice that the mind too can open and close and that the heart opens and closes. And you think, oh, I want to move through the world loving everybody all the time, this great open heart. You know, you'd be tired. You got to give it a rest sometimes right. too. So what you start to realize is rather than fixing any experience as it, you become the acceptance. You become the space of awareness, loving awareness that says, oh no, vast and open. And that vastness is, is a relief. The image from the Buddha, he says, if you put a teaspoon of salt in a cup, it's very salty. But if you put that same teaspoon in the lake, the water is pure and clear when you drink it. Make your mind vast like the lake, like the sky, and let the sorrows and joys and pain and pleasure of life come and go. But you be that spaciousness. But that's not the only thing he says, you know. Three days later, he's talking to some monk, and he says, I want you to be so careful when you fold your robes and when you pick up your bowl and when you, that it's like you're carrying the most precious child that was just born. I want you to bring the most intimate attention because enlightenment, according to Zen Master Dogen, means to become intimate with the world without anything shielding you from it. You're there with it. So which is the real deal, the intimacy of tasting that tangerine piece that explodes in your mouth? Or is it the vastness, you know? Or is it just kind of the witnessing sitting on your shoulder and getting a little impatient saying, okay, this podcast, how much longer do we have? We just started, what are they going to say? Whatever, you know, is this going well? Which is the right awareness? And of course... There isn't a right awareness. Even awareness itself breathes, sometimes vast and open, sometimes very tender and intimate. Um, and it's not about holding something. It's about trusting that you can allow awareness to, to unfold that it is who you are, that you are loving awareness, you are consciousness itself. So that beautiful opening that you talked about that we did in the room where I invited people as those who are listening to hear these sounds and let their mind open as if you are the sky and the sounds come and go and the sensations float. Beautiful. But then it's time to go to lunch, you know, and they say, um, how would you like your meal cooked? Do you want medium rare or do you want, you know, how do you want your tofu cooked? Or <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I, I swear, and talk about being a complete idiot in the midst of this thing that you were doing. I thought, I, what I, am I going to have for lunch? No, no. I thought even worse. I really <laughs> thought, am I, am I getting enlightened right now? Is this, and then, Five minutes after you're done, I'm on Twitter looking at, you know, looking at nothing. Well, obviously you did get enlightened, and now you're expressing it through your tweets. Oh, man. <laughs> the Buddha that's... got enlightened. He picked up his smartphone, and he said, done is what had to be done. I've now seen the morning star and transcended self and other and awakened and... That was 140 characters. He would have taken an Instagram <laughs> shot under the <laughs> under tree. the tree. Um, exactly. You, you, um, um, yeah. The mind has no pride, Duncan. You know that very well, right? Right. It will do anything, and you're there, and you're like in the most wild, open, delicious, loving place and vastness, and you think, God, when this is done. I need to go shopping, or I'm gonna, yes. you know, I need a new pair of sneakers. I need so, to, I, so right. no way out. So this is this is 
Uh, what do you mean no way out? So what I mean is uh, you can't trust the mind. The mind, you'll have these experiences. It has a mind of its own, right? Yes. yes. So what I mean is are we perpetually trapped in this never-ending fluctuation from uh, epiphanous moments to... Mon- mon- if that's how you hold it, you're trapped. But the very same thing can be held in a different way. If you see it, it's just the dance. If you see, oh, I love it when the tide goes out and I can see all the rocks and the corals exposed, but I hate it when the tide comes in because it covers everything, then you suffer a lot. But if you say, cool, this incarnation, this planet has tides. Watch the moon change its phases. Didn't you see that little sliver of the moon last Mm. night hanging in the sky? It was so beautiful. Oh, we get to watch it open and close. Isn't that gorgeous? We get to watch people be born and dance their incarnation and then pass off stage. We get to watch, you know, the mystery of the changing of seasons and light. And um, sometimes the mind gets lost and constricted and filled with its self-worry, really. The body of fear is what we call ego, really. It's just fear, separateness. And then sometimes the mind opens up. And you feel the vastness, and you just become love. You are love. I'm sorry. Can you please clarify what you just said? You're saying that the body of the ego equals fear? It's fear, yeah. Whoa. The ego is, I mean, well, I don't like to use the word ego because it sounds so pejorative. But I, I'd rather call it the body of fear, the small sense of self that's separate. And that's just fear. It's just Yeah, different. and fear is fine. Fear is just um, part of uh, the experience of feeling separate. It has fear in it. Um, you know, I think what we're talking about, and just I'm rounding this back to the theme, but this is, is this not, in terms of what you're saying, you you stepped out of this space and then you, you know, you're thinking about what's the next thing to do, you're twittering, whatever, tweeting. But uh, when you uh, offered this particular part of uh, the theme, the path to intimacy asks us, to embrace those parts of ourselves that we're speaking of right now, right? Is that, that's yes. to me yes. the critical. Beautiful, Raghu. Thanks for kind of rearticulating that. Um, the point isn't to perfect yourself; it's to perfect your love. Um, as I said, in there, you know, we've God knows we went to therapy. I'm sure you've done therapy, done. Yeah, and it shows. No, and um, it doesn't show. You know, actually. it doesn't show. And you go to the gym; that doesn't show either. And you work out, and you have your trainer. And you, oh, classic oh. cornfield burn. <laughs> and you, you know, we get our trainers, and we work out, and we have a new diet, and we get all these things to try and fix ourselves in some way. And they're good things. I mean, I like body work, and I've had very good therapy, and all those things, and it helped with my pain and trauma and things. But in the end, we're still the same kind of weird person we always were. Right. That's, that's, um, and we have buried in there certain kinds of fears and traumas and, you know, dare I love and will I be hurt and the kind of wounding and so forth. But to become awake is to step beyond that in a way, not to dishonor it, to love it, to do what trauma work you need, but to realize it's not about perfecting yourself. It's about loving the whole catastrophe that's the, you know, Zorba's words. Um, coming to bring a kind of tenderness to the things that you've shied away from. And Trudy said a beautiful thing this morning when she was teaching. I think it was this morning or this afternoon anyway. She said, um, 
or yesterday afternoon, she said it's really helpful in your life, or it can be very important to have at least one person who knows all your secrets mm. beside yourself, somebody who really knows you. Yeah. Because when you reveal yourself, also there's something healing in it because you're able to see it, not just inside yourself, but somehow huh. there's uh, some there's some space around it even by articulating oh my god i am so embarrassed i so hate my i hate the way my body looks i hate my thighs i hate my bald head you know i hate my drooping whatever i hate you know or i'm so embarrassed i can't remember a damn thing or i'm not educated my language all these things we hate about ourselves yeah. you know um and to be able to tell that to someone who loves you I mean, it's why Ramdas is so mm. um, was so transformed by Neem Karoli Baba, by his guru, who he said, "Oh my God, the guy reads my mind. He knows everything. He knows about my weird weirdness and my sexuality and my fears and my ego and stuff. And he loves me anyway." Yeah. And there's something about bringing that kind of loving awareness and intimacy of attention to the places that we hide. Yeah. To the places that are ashamed, that where we carry shame and guilt, and hold them with tenderness, because they're all trying to protect us. That's really what they are. Well, the there is a okay, right? That, that this intimacy, right here, uh, takes it out. It takes that word into a new, whole new plane of consciousness in my mind. And working with that, I think, is so super important to allow for us to be able to accept these shameful, judgmental things that we... It feels like... Well, I mean, if you're saying the ego is fear, mm -hmm. and the identity, that part of the identity is fear, I, I guess it makes sense, but it, you know, I think sometimes I'll stand in front of the mirror and look at me fat, balding, and I will think to myself, I can't not... I can fake look at this and be like, yeah, I love you, man. But there is a part of me that just, that is a, I cannot get around it. I can't get past that because I think, you know what? This is a representation of laziness. This represents a lack of discipline. This represents something that should be fixed, not something that should be loved. And so part of the engine of, of I guess, my ambition to be a better person is to hate or to dislike or to just sort of, be embarrassed by parts of myself that seem fixable and a representation of a series of terrible decisions. So when does you're, this kind of... You're a, yeah, you're a sad case. That's right. Yes. <laughs> All right, Poor so that's thing. one way to view yourself. And the, the interesting thing is it's not just you, but, you know, because I've taught for 40-some years and work with people and all their... I've worked with people who are models, who like you know, when they get in the right light with the right makeup and the camera in the right way, they take your breath away with their human beauty. Yes. They're obsessed, in many cases, with the flaws in their body, you know. Oh, when I turn my face that way, you see this dimple doesn't look... Or, right. or, or my thigh doesn't, you know. You, you can work on your body and do this, and, and it, it won't necessarily change your consciousness. And the amount of suffering... Mm that girls 
especially, but boys too have. And of course, every teenager thinks that they're a kind of distorted, weird, you know, yeah. um, that's just part, because your body changes and all, oh my God, hair sprouting everywhere and right. things like that. And you, you know that there's something wrong with your body. <laughs> At least I felt that way. And, um, but even as you go past that, um, the amount of suffering, because you have this model of how you're supposed to be. Now, you look at your body and you say, lazy sucker, you know, right? Yes. Okay. So not only are you looking at it with judgment about your body, but then you're also judging your, your whole temperament and psyche and basically your self-worth or whatever it yes. happens to be. There you are, which is down in the gutter at that moment or somewhere down there sure. anyway. Um, that's one way to look at it and say, oh, I'm a lazy person. I usually don't see people as lazy. I see most of the time that people make choices about the things that they love the most um, rather than that they're lazy, that there's doing some, some other, other kind of thing. There's other things that you want to do, you care about. But you could look at the very same problem in yourself. We'll call it a problem for a moment. Okay, he's, um, body could use a little toning, let's yes. say. Okay. And instead of doing it out of hate, you said, okay, I'll get a stick, I'll get that lazy sucker, I'm going to beat the dog and get him to run, you know. Yes. You could also look at your body and your life with love. And you could say, what a cool thing, I have this body and I'm, you know, I'm not that old yet. And uh, yeah, I went through cancer and I triumphed that and, you know, I look okay. I mean, I'm not like, you know whoever you think is the model, handsome, whatever, most. But I'm, I'm doing okay, actually. And then you say, but I love this body. It's really, you know, I, I, I'm enjoying the pleasures of life, the conversations. I'm enjoying even going through the difficulties and learning, things like that. Right. I think I should take care of this body. Maybe I'll do a little more, you know. And you could do the very same thing. You could say, yeah, I'm going to get a, you know, an exercise regimen uh, and do it out of love rather than out of shame. You That's could, cool. but it's up to you, baby. You know, it's just and a little the problem flip. is that, that we, um, I can say that to you because I trust your consciousness some, that you've actually done a bunch of work on yourself mm -hmm. so that you can start to feel the choice within consciousness right. to hate yourself or to realize, oh, I can act out of love and be responsible. Love actually is caring. Yes, sure. But when I'm talking through the microphone to lots of other people, the conditioning around shame and guilt and grief is profound. And it takes time and tenderness and taking the places that feel the most wounded and holding them in your hands and in your heart in some way and learning little by little to say, you know, I love this body. I love this life. I love what I've been given, even though, you know, it's not picture-perfect magazine cover, bright light in the, you know, right. and good makeup. I love this. Um, and to come back and see that you're worthy, that what was born in you was the child of the spirit, that every child has this beautiful spirit. You can remember the happiest times, the, the most joyful adventures of your childhood and know that that child of the spirit is still buried in there yeah. and wants it, to live and wants to come out. Um, and you are not limited to your wounds. I mean, yeah, you have to heal them, and, you know, and they brought you initiation and wisdom at certain times, but it's not who you are. Mm. It just isn't. 
And your body isn't who you are. Right. I mean, God, help us. <laughs> you know, <laughs> God you are, you know, you are consciousness. You are loving awareness. Right. Um, this brings up, we're talking human. It, it, the other day we were talking about being human. I think I mentioned, because you talk about it in, in different, you have talked about it in different talks over the years, that it's okay to be human. And I, I brought it up in this particular concept, uh, context around, because we were talking about the election and the fear that's going on related to the election and what has happened and so on. And I used it because, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk around we can't be angry. We were talking about social action as well. We can't uh, hope to accomplish anything if we are angry, if we are frustrated, if we are in any way, continuing the polarization that's going on in this country. And that's what I mentioned to Jack. And I, I guess, you know, the it's okay to be human. And I guess accepting that is, is a precursor to, to transforming the polarization that's in us. I mean, I've done a lot of work over a lot of years. And I, I, you know, this certainly put me through some changes. I mean, at, if, if it's at the very least the embarrassment of, of somebody who, who has been acting in this way uh, related to women and, and to minorities and so on and so forth. So, yeah, what about how to transform the accepting of being human and transforming that eventually into being able to overcome polarization within yourself and reacting. Zen master Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, author of um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, looked at his students one day and he said, you're perfect just the way you are, which is a really beautiful thing to see, to see the perfection of each person. And he paused for a moment, he said, and there's still room for improvement, you know. <laughs> and you're asking about the two sides of this in some yeah. way. Um, that to be really effective um, as a social change agent, um, there are lots of ways. You can be motivated by anger. You can be motivated by fear. And you can get a lot done from that. But you also can increase the suffering and polarization mm -hmm. at times. Yeah. Or you can do what Gandhi did and take a day every week in silence as he did and sit quietly or something like it and you know he was trying to bring down the entire British Empire which was you know half the world at that time and there would be people being killed in marches and hundreds of thousands of people out and they'd he'd say well Thursday's my day off you know I'm gonna say, say Gandhiji you can't I mean this is you know we're in the middle of the big battle for justice and he said sorry Thursday is my day to talk to God rather than you all right and he'd get quiet and in getting quiet he would listen to the action that he could do that came from the place of the deepest love for everyone mm. and it had a power of love and truth in it that was different than just being reactive out there. Being reactive is fine, we're human, we react, but it's like Martin Luther King saying after the, his church was bombed and those children were killed, and he said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will not hate you, but we will soon wear you down with the power of our love. Mm. 
So um, people think about love or acceptance of yourself or so forth as a kind of a weakness. Um, and my friend, colleague, Wes Nisker, went to interview Gary Snyder um, recently. And Gary's in his mid-80s, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and environmentalist. He wrote Earth, Earth Household 50 years ago, talking about the environment. He said, Gary, global warming, climate change, loss of species, um, rising oceans... Um, you know, now in your lifetime you're seeing this uh, environmental destruction. What do you have to say to us? And Gary looked back and he said, don't feel guilty. He said, if you're going to save it, don't save it out of guilt or anger. Save it because you love it. I mean, it's the power that has mothers pick cars up off their children. It's the power that had Martin Luther King walk through the streets and millions of people follow him because they could feel that his heart and his love was bigger than the suffering around him. And so now with the political change and the um, elections in this fall of 2016 and so forth, um, it's possible, it's quite possible, that there'll be a lot of vulnerable people, climate and so forth, that um, need to be stood up for, that need um, protection. Um, and we have to, for those who are concerned about justice or the climate or the environment and so forth, um, we have to first be strategic, not just to leap in, but say, what are the things that really matter and then secondly, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we listen so deeply that we listen to the concerns of the others? Um, it's like these friends who went to England. It was um, during one of the friends told me this story. Um, during an anti-nuclear campaign against cruise missiles that were being um, placed strategically all around Europe at a certain point. Um, and they were nuclear-armed cruise missiles any one of which could kill a million or five million people. Horrifying, and there's, there's now 20,000 of them still around the world, so we, we have to pay attention to this. Um, and they had been protesting at one of the bases where they were going to um, bring a whole new array of these missiles in. And finally, it, were, it was arranged that they could go and see the general in charge of it all, who was in charge of part of the whole European command and the nuclear umbrella of Europe. And they went in, and the woman who was the main spokesperson, you know, and they'd been protesting and worried for the life of their children and worried what would happen, and in many cases, many were very angry. They went in, and she, had, she was a very wise woman. And she had a kind of meditation the night before and understood something. And she sat down with the general. And the first thing she said, beside thanking him for the time, is, it, it must feel very hard for you to hold the weight of responsibility to protect the population of Europe in your hands. You know, and he nodded. And it's like, okay, they get that I have this responsibility. And then they could have a conversation of, right. all right, how do you fulfill that? But she had to listen deeply to where he was coming from and, and confront and go there, but to do it in a way that also honored that person and their fears and their needs right. in some way. Right. Yeah, very difficult. Well, 
I mean, I think that, you know, through all of this conversation that we've had both at the retreat and here about about this in reference to social action in reference to what's going on with the election and so on, there's no there's no waiting till you're perfect to be able to go out and do something. There is the uh, combination of understanding you've got to, you you day to day we do the best we can with working through and embracing you know just what we've been talking, embracing those parts of ourselves that are uh, certainly in this case polarized and very angry or whatever. We have to continue to work on those, but I don't think we can wait till they're complete. We can't. We're not Gandhi yet. Well, and um, but Gandhi wasn't Gandhi. I mean, that's a whole fiction. You know, if you read his autobiography and his experiments in truth, he was messed up. You know, his whole thing around sexuality was really stupid, and he, you know, and he suffered a lot from it. And and there were other things. No, no, no. Uh, I'm not talking about an ideal. I'm just talking about getting quiet enough so that you can do your best rather than your kind of right. sh- shitty, reactive, you know, angry, whatever conditioning. That there's something deeper in you that cares so much. For people, but Jack, yeah, this this that you're talking about, um, it is easier to be angry than it is to love. And when you're talking for about, you, <laughs> yes, for me, for me, yeah. because, and I don't think I'm the only one. Because when we, again, I don't mean to keep using the term lure, but when you're luring us into the, into these. Wonderful place of meditations, yeah. yes, come, yes, but it's you. I come into contact with a great deal of just pain. This is just pain. And when I think about what's the pain, oh god, when you're talking about loving the planet enough to save it, when when I can get angry mm-hmm. about monsters dumping oil into the ocean, that's easy. But it's very painful to then like feel for the animals that are being destroyed by this. It's it's I, it's it is very painful, and every single thing that I look at through that lens is ju- it's just pain, and I am pain adverse. <laughs> so it's a it's a, what you are asking us to do is. Um, I guess I don't. The, my question is: Does it stop being painful, or is one quality of love just this? Or am I fucked up? <laughs> All of the above. I think I check those boxes. And, <laughs> but you know, um, the fact that you resonate with the pain of the animals and creatures that climate change or environmental destruction is causing so much, you know, damage to their lives and so forth, or to the human beings. Um, That's an expression of your love. That's an expression of your openness. Um, Mm. You're letting yourself feel the suffering of those. It's, It's compassion, really, and your concern. And then you say, am I messed up because I feel that? No. Um, is it okay to feel it? Yes. Then you say, well, will it go away? I hope not. I hope not. I don't think, you know, when the Dalai Lama or Aung San Suu Kyi or Tutu or something look out um, at the sorrows of the world that they don't feel the pain, they weep, and I've seen them weep, you know. Um, 
So there's something honorable. It's the tears of compassion, the tears of the way that sees the the ocean of suffering. And, right, um, and doesn't drown in it, that sees that and also sees the unbearable beauty of this world and the mystery and the fact that you, Duncan, or me, Jack, or you, you know, Raghu, it's not your job to fix the world. It's your job to add a piece mm -hmm. to it. You get to add, and, and are you going to add something beautiful? Are you going to stand up for something that really matters? Are you going to, you know, plant some seeds that bring dignity or justice or, or, or help life? That you can do with your life. But it's not given to you. To, that would be a kind of hubris. Okay, I have to take it. This is the earth realm. It's samsara. Right. It has joy and sorrow. It has good decades and bad ones. It has great suffering. It has immense beauty. There are more acts of goodness every day by a measure of a thousand than there are acts of cruelty and violence. There are. So what are you going to tune in? Yes, the news likes the crappy, bad, no, that's, oh, let's blow something up. Great, let's show that one on. That will get, capture the eyeballs, you know. Right. Um, but don't let it capture your heart. Because, in fact, that's not the world. And if you look even at Darwin, you know, um, instead of the survival of the fittest, which is sort of the common denominator translation of Darwin's evolution, the next volume he wrote was a, about collaboration between species and among families and clans and how it was actually the collaboration that allowed a species to survive and thrive. Um, and he wrote a whole thing about um, all beings and compassion, things like that. It was read to the Dalai Lama. And Dalai said, did, the, did, the, did Darwin really write about, you know, uh, care for all beings? And he did. So what lens you use will also determine whether you take the suffering into yourself, you know, you let yourself feel it, and, and let it in some way diminish you, or whether you will bear witness to it and say, what a mystery that I'm born into, and yes, there's the suffering, and I'm going to plant the seeds or do my work um, and add to something beautiful happening here. It's, um, it's perfect, actually. I mean, this is great. Just that thought you have about the animals on the planet, and in, in particularly in the ocean, you talked about the dumping that goes on from time to time, destroying so much. The flip is, you're, you were identifying yourself with the anger about it, and the suggestion was to identify with the love and compassion that made you even consider this, and and, and coming from that place, you know, so that's... That's the, the easy little flip that we can all make in almost every part of our life, of our lives, to identify with the love rather than the negative, love and compassion rather than negative. It's not the end of the story, too, as Gandhi wrote. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the ways of truth and love have always won. There, yes, there have been tyrants and murderers, and for a while they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it always. And it's stepping back and seeing the turning of the centuries in history and civilizations and, you know, what are you going to contribute to this amazing, you know, dance of life that you get to participate in for this time? And some of it is terrible. 
and some of it is grievous. Um, and it is, and it will be, and even if we made it, you know, we had the best um, kind of social um, support network for everyone and we tried to feed everyone in the world. Thank God we could do that because we have grain elevators full of food. We could feed all the hungry children, even if we didn't, which would be a wonderful thing and we need work to do it. You don't think there'd be suffering in families? Right. You don't think there'd be suffering in communities? You don't think there would still be plenty suffering? Because it, too, is part of human incarnation. I, I, do, I, I do, and I love what you're saying, but I think that as a species, most of us are pain-adverse. And it's in, in this, when I see the, you know, the left freaking out in mostly in angry ways, I know why, because that's so much easier than to connect with people in the Midwest whose dad got canned from a factory going to uh, Mexico. And, and the, the, the absolute heartbreak that is happening that makes perhaps a tyrant or not, I don't know, get elected. But what I'm saying is as a form of social action, I am very skeptical about any large part of the population opening their heart to love, not because... That's an interesting thought. It hurts. My nad. Could be true, it might not be. Here's James Baldwin. I believe that one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain, which is what you're saying. That's it. And, and, and so as a society, we project our pain because we can't bear the fact that the world is changing, that um, there's insecurity, that the population is changing, that the economy, that what work is called is even changing in the technological age. Right. And so we blame, and, and we've had it, you know, we have the enemy du jour. Before it was the communists, or it was the gays, and, you know, then it becomes the immigrants, or the Muslims, or the, you know, we just, who, who is it going to be next, right? Um, because we can't bear the, the pain that we each have been given to carry, and we're pain-averse. One of the things that's true about waking up or about um, reclaiming your heart or spiritual practice, and I don't even want to use that word, I really call it practice to become a full human being, is that you increase your capacity the window of tolerance, it's called in psychology, for both joy and sorrow. And so that you can tolerate um, the pains of life. Right. You can bear it. This is part of what it means to be, we we'll go all the way back to the beginning, to be an initiated person, to be a wise person. Mm -hmm. You've gone through an initiation that shows you can do this, and you can also bear the beauty of it. Because some people are as afraid of love, and then they'll lose something, or they're afraid of the beauty. Oh, I'm denigrating all the trouble in the world as if you were helping the poor refugees by not seeing that gorgeous sunset, you know, or tasting the, the blessed food that was put on your table, right. when in fact they would be so happy to have it. And you can work to get food to them, but it doesn't mean you have to starve yourself. You increase your capacity for joy and love for the world, and also your capacity to feel deeply and resonate with the suffering, and then respond to it. And that makes you somebody who's more fearless or wiser or, or in some way more able to be the agent 
that moves through the terrors of the li of life and the beauty of it, um, dispensing or bringing some beautiful seeds. You know, and I, I think about it because it doesn't take a lot of people. Thich Nhat Hanh said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. Mm. But if even one person remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. Mm. And Thomas Jefferson put it this way. He said, um, one person with courage is a majority. Mm. Which yeah. is an amazing thing to say. Yeah. One person, like that guy standing up with his shopping bags in front of the tank, you know, in Tiananmen Square or wherever it was in China, that one person has an enormous power in that way. And so don't discount that. Don't discount what's possible for us as human beings. Um, and then you start to realize that these are gifts that's given to everyone and that you can learn this, you can remember this, you can open. I want an education that inspires people. That's the kind of education I want that reminds them that this yeah. is possible in you, you know, and I want our communication to, to, to touch people so that they feel empowered um, and they feel that, yes, they can handle all the difficulties and the beauty and they can do something good with it. You know, mm -hmm. and um, it's I mean, you say things are really tough. What if you've lost your job? What if you can't feed your family? What if you've lost your mortgage? All that horrible stuff that happened. You know, no one was prosecuted for the 2008 um, multi-trillion-dollar meltdown of the of the world economy, and there's still millions of homes that are you know people lost their homes and mortgages and so forth. I don't mean to make light of that. The people can be in quite desperate circumstances. Yes. But I've been in refugee camps, and I've been in some of the poorest places in this country and in the world, and there are certain people who walk through that space with so much love and dignity and say, yes, you know, I'll serve, I'll, I'll, I'll bring my good spirit to it. And it's really remarkable, and they change things where they are. Mm. Beautiful. And that's that's really our aspiration, and it brings it all back home. You know, finding the beloved and touching the compassionate heart. I think we've really done a full circle back. So thank you, Jack. Thank you, Jack. It's been great. Thank you, Duncan. And this is all uh, by the grace of uh, the Be Here Now Network that we are all part of. And uh, please continue to share. And, and we will continue to do so. Thank you, Duncan. Thanks, Raghu. Yeah.